Chapter 10b of Considerations on Representative Government. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Considerations on Representative Government by John Stuart Mill. Chapter 10b. It will, of course, be objected that these arguments derive all their weight from the supposition of an unjust state of the suffrage. That if the opinion of the non-electors is likely to make the elector vote more honestly or more beneficially than he would vote if left to himself, they are more fit to be electors than he is, and ought to have the franchise. That whoever is fit to influence electors is fit to be an elector. That those to whom voters ought to be responsible should be themselves voters, and, being such, should have the safeguard of the ballot to shield them from the undue influence of powerful individuals or classes to whom they ought not to be responsible. This argument is specious, and I once thought it conclusive. It now appears to me fallacious. All who are fit to influence electors are not, for that reason, fit to be themselves electors. This last is a much greater power than the former, and those may be ripe for the minor political function who could not as yet be safely trusted with the superior. The opinions and wishes of the poorest and rudest class of laborers may be very useful as one influence among others on the minds of the voters, as well as on those of the legislature, and yet it might be highly mischievous to give them the preponderant influence by admitting them, in their present state of morals and intelligence, to the full exercise of the suffrage. It is precisely this indirect influence of those who have not the suffrage over those who have, which by its progressive growth softens the transition to every fresh extension of the franchise, and is the means by which, when the time is ripe, the extension is peacefully brought about. But there is another and a still deeper consideration, which should never be left out of the account in political speculations. The notion is itself unfounded that publicity, and the sense of being answerable to the public, are of no use unless the public are qualified to form a sound judgment. It is a very superficial view of the utility of public opinion, to suppose that it does good only when it succeeds in enforcing a servile conformity to itself. To be under the eyes of others, to have to defend oneself to others, is never more important than to those who act in opposition to the opinion of others, for it obliges them to have sure ground of their own. Nothing has so steadying an influence as working against pressure. Unless when under the temporary sway of passionate excitement no one will do that which he expects to be greatly blamed for, unless from a preconceived and fixed purpose of his own, which is always evidence of a thoughtful and deliberate character, and, except in radically bad men, generally proceeds from sincere and strong personal convictions. Even the bare fact of having to give an account of their conduct is a powerful inducement to adhere to conduct of which at least some decent account can be given. If any one thinks that the mere obligation of preserving decency is not a very considerable check on the abuse of power, he has never had his attention called to the conduct of those who do not feel under the necessity of observing that restraint. Publicity is inappreciable, even when it does no more than prevent that which can by no possibility be plausibly defended, then compel the deliberation, and force every one to determine, before he acts, what he shall say if called to account for his actions. But if not now, it may be said, at least hereafter, when all are fit to have votes, and when all men and women are admitted to vote in virtue of their fitness, then, 
there can no longer be danger of class legislation. Then the electors, being the nation, can have no interest apart from the general interest. Even if individuals still vote according to private or class inducements, the majority will have no such inducement. And as there will then be no non-electors to whom they ought to be responsible, the effect of the ballot, excluding none but the sinister influences, will be wholly beneficial. Even in this I do not agree. I cannot think that even if the people were fit for, and had obtained universal suffrage, the ballot would be desirable. First, because it could not, in such circumstances, be supposed to be needful. Let us only conceive the state of things which the hypothesis implies. A people universally educated, and every grown-up human being possessed of a vote. If, even when only a small proportion are electors, and the majority of the population almost uneducated, public opinion is already, as every one now sees that it is, the ruling power in the last resort, it is a chimera to suppose that over a community who all read, and who all have votes, any power could be exercised by landlords and rich people against their own inclination, which it would be at all difficult for them to throw off. But, though the protection of secrecy would then be needless, the control of publicity would be as needful as ever. The universal observation of mankind has been very fallacious, if the mere fact of being one of the community, and not being in a position of pronounced contrariety of interest to the public at large, is enough to ensure the performance of a public duty, without either the stimulus or the restraint derived from the opinion of our fellow-creatures. A man's own particular share of the public interest, even though he may have no private interest drawing him in the opposite direction, is not, as a general rule, found sufficient to make him do his duty to the public without other external inducements. Neither can it be admitted that, even if all had votes, they would give their votes as honestly in secret as in public. The proposition that the electors, when they compose the whole of the community, cannot have an interest in voting against the interest of the community, will be found on examination to have more sound than meaning in it. Though the community as a whole can have, as the terms imply, no other interest than its collective interest, any or every individual in it may. A man's interest consists of whatever he takes an interest in. Everybody has as many different interests as he has feelings, likings or dislikings, either of a selfish or of a better kind. It cannot be said that any of these, taken by itself, constitutes his interest. He is a good man or a bad, according as he prefers one class of his interests or another. A man who is a tyrant at home will be apt to sympathize with tyranny when not exercised over himself. He will be almost certain not to sympathize with resistance to tyranny. An envious man will vote against Aristides because he is called the just. A selfish man will prefer even a trifling individual benefit to his share of the advantage which his country would derive from a good law, because interests peculiar to himself are those which the habits of his mind both dispose him to dwell on and make him best able to estimate. A great number of the electors will have two sets of preferences, those on private and those on public grounds. The last are the only ones which the elector would like to avow. The best side of their character is that which people are anxious to show, even to those who are no better than themselves. People will give dishonest or mean votes from lucre, from malice, from pique, from personal rivalry, even from the interests or prejudices of class or sect more readily in secret than in public, 
and cases exist, they may come to be more frequent, in which almost the only restraint upon a majority of knaves consists in their involuntary respect for the opinion of an honest minority. In such a case as that of the repudiating states of North America, is there not some check to the unprincipled voter in the shame of looking an honest man in the face? Since all this good would be sacrificed by the ballot, even in the circumstances most favorable to it, a much stronger case is requisite than can now be made out for its necessity, and the case is continually becoming still weaker, to make its adoption desirable. Footnote. Thoughts on Parliamentary Reform. Second edition. Page 32 through 36. End footnote. On the other debatable points connected with the mode of voting, it is not necessary to expend so many words. The system of personal representation as organized by Mr. Hare renders necessary the employment of voting papers. But it appears to me indispensable that the signature of the elector should be affixed to the paper at a public polling-place, or if there be no such place conveniently accessible at some office open to all the world, and in the presence of a responsible public officer. The proposal which has been thrown out of allowing the voting papers to be filled up at the voter's own residence, and sent by the post, or called for by a public officer, I should regard as fatal. The act would be done in the absence of the salutary and the presence of all the pernicious influences. The briber might, in the shelter of privacy, behold with his own eyes his bargain fulfilled, and the intimidator could see the extorted obedience rendered irrevocably on the spot, while the beneficent counter-influence of the presence of those who know the voter's real sentiments, and the inspiring effect of the sympathy of those of his own party or opinion, would be shut out. Footnote. This expedient has been recommended both on the score of saving expense and on that of obtaining the votes of many electors who otherwise would not vote, and who are regarded by the advocates of the plan as a particularly desirable class of voters. The scheme has been carried into practice in the election of poor law guardians, and its success in that instance is appealed to in favor of adopting it in the more important case of voting for a member of the legislature. But the two cases appear to me to differ in the point on which the benefits of the expedient depend. In a local election for a special kind of administrative business, which consists mainly in the dispensation of a public fund, it is an object to prevent the choice from being exclusively in the hands of those who actively concern themselves about it. For the public interest which attaches to the election being of a limited kind, and in most cases not very great in degree, the disposition to make themselves busy in the matter is apt to be in a great measure confined to persons who hope to turn their activity to their own private advantage, and it may be very desirable to render the intervention of other people as little onerous to them as possible, if only for the purpose of swamping these private interests. But when the matter in hand is the great business of national government, in which every one must take an interest who cares for anything out of himself, or who cares even for himself intelligently, it is much rather an object to prevent those from voting who are indifferent to the subject, than to induce them to vote by any other means than that of awakening their dormant minds. The voter who does not care enough about the election to go to the poll is the very man who, if he can vote without that small trouble, will give his vote to the first person who asks for it, or on the most trifling or frivolous inducement. 
A man who does not care whether he votes is not likely to care much which way he votes, and he who is in that state of mind has no moral right to vote at all, since, if he does so, a vote which is not the expression of a conviction counts for as much and goes as far in determining the result as one which represents the thoughts and purposes of a life. Thoughts, etc., page 39. End footnote. The polling places should be so numerous as to be within easy reach of every voter, and no expenses of conveyance at the cost of the candidate should be tolerated under any pretext. The infirm, and they only on medical certificate, should have the right of claiming suitable carriage conveyance at the cost of the state or of the locality. Hustings, poll clerks, and all the necessary machinery of elections should be at the public charge. Not only the candidate should not be required, he should not be permitted to incur any but a limited and trifling expense for his election. Mr. Hare thinks it desirable that a sum of fifty pounds should be required from every one who places his name on the list of candidates, to prevent persons who have no chance of success, and no real intention of attempting it, from becoming candidates in wantonness, or from mere love of notoriety, and perhaps carrying off a few votes which are needed for the return of more serious aspirants. There is one expense which a candidate or his supporters cannot help incurring, and which it can hardly be expected that the public should defray for every one who may choose to demand it, that of making his claims known to the electors, by advertisements, placards, and circulars. For all necessary expenses of this kind, the fifty pounds proposed by Mr. Hare, if allowed to be drawn upon for these purposes—it might be made one hundred pounds if requisite—ought to be sufficient. If the friends of the candidate choose to go to expense for committees and canvassing, there are no means of preventing them. But such expenses out of the candidate's own pocket, or any expenses whatever beyond the deposit of fifty pounds or one hundred pounds, should be illegal and punishable. If there appeared any likelihood that opinion would refuse to connive at falsehood, a declaration on oath or honour should be required from every member, on taking his seat, that he had not expended, nor would expend, money or money's worth beyond the fifty pounds, directly or indirectly, for the purposes of his election and if the assertion were proved to be false, or the pledge to have been broken, he should be liable to the penalties of perjury. It is probable that those penalties, by showing that the legislature was in earnest, would turn the course of opinion in the same direction, and would hinder it from regarding, as has hitherto been done, this most serious crime against society as a venial peccadillo. When once this effect has been produced, there would be no doubt that the declaration on oath or honour would be considered binding. Footnote. Several of the witnesses before the Committee of the House of Commons in 1860 on the operation of the Corrupt Practices Prevention Act, some of them of great practical experience in election matters, were favourable, either absolutely or as a last resort, to the principle of requiring a declaration from members of Parliament, and were of opinion that, if supported by penalties, it would be, to a great degree, effectual. Evidence. Pages 46, 54 to 7, 67, 123, 198 to 202, 208. The Chief Commissioner of the Wakefield Inquiry said, in reference certainly to a different proposal, 
If they see that the legislature is earnest upon the subject, the machinery will work. I am quite sure that if some personal stigma were applied upon conviction of bribery, it would change the current of public opinion. Pages 26 and 32. A distinguished member of the committee, and of the present cabinet, seemed to think it very objectionable to attach the penalties of perjury to a merely promissory, as distinguished from an assertory oath. But he was reminded that the oath taken by a witness in a court of justice is a promissory oath, and the rejoinder, that the witness's promise relates to an act to be done at once, while the members would be a promise for all future time, would only be to the purpose if it could be supposed that the swearer might forget the obligation he had entered into, or could possibly violate it unawares, contingencies which, in a case like the present, are out of the question. A more substantial difficulty is that one of the forms most frequently assumed by election expenditure is that of subscriptions to local charities or other local objects, and it would be a strong measure to enact that money should not be given in charity within a place by the member for it. When such subscriptions are bona fide, the popularity which may be derived from them is an advantage which it seems hardly possible to deny to superior riches but the greatest part of the mischief consists in the fact that money so contributed is employed in bribery under the euphonious name of keeping up the member's interest to guard against this it should be part of the member's promissory declaration that all sums expended by him in the place or for any purpose connected with it or with any of its inhabitants with the exception perhaps of his own hotel expenses should pass through the hands of the election auditor and be by him and not by the member himself or his friends, applied to its declared purpose. The principle of making all lawful expenses of a charge, not upon the candidate, but upon the locality, was upheld by two of the best witnesses. Pages 20, 65-70, 277. End footnote. Opinion tolerates a false disclaimer only when it already tolerates the thing disclaimed. This is notoriously the case with regard to electoral corruption. There has never yet been among political men any real and serious attempt to prevent bribery, because there has been no real desire that elections should not be costly. Their costliness is an advantage to those who can afford the expense by excluding a multitude of competitors. And anything, however noxious, is cherished as having a conservative tendency if it limits the access to Parliament to rich men. This is a rooted feeling among our legislators of both political parties, and is almost the only point on which I believe them to be really ill-intentioned. They care comparatively little who votes, as long as they feel assured that none but persons of their own class can be voted for. They know that they can rely on the fellow-feeling of one of their class with another, while the subservience of Nouveau and Richie, who are knocking at the door of the class, is a still surer reliance and that nothing very hostile to the class interests or feelings of the rich need be apprehended under the most democratic suffrage, as long as democratic persons can be prevented from being elected to Parliament. But even from their own point of view, this balancing of evil by evil, instead of combining good with good, is a wretched policy. The object should be to bring together the best members of both classes, under such a tenure as shall induce them to lay aside their class preferences, and pursue jointly the path traced by the common interest. 
instead of allowing the class feelings of the many to have full swing in the constituencies subject to the impediment of having to act through persons imbued with the class feelings of the few there is scarcely any mode in which political institutions are more morally mischievous work greater evil through their spirit than by representing political functions as a favour to be conferred a thing which the depositary is to ask for as desiring it for himself and even pay for as if it were designed for his pecuniary benefit men are not fond of paying large sums for leave to perform a laborious duty plato had a much juster view of the conditions of good government when he asserted that the persons who should be sought out to be invested with political power are those who are personally most averse to it and that the only motive which can be relied on for inducing the fittest men to take upon themselves the toils of government is the fear of being governed by worse men what must an elector think when he sees three or four gentlemen none of them previously observed to be lavish with their money on projects of disinterested beneficence vying with one another in the sums they expend to be enabled to write m p after their names is it likely he will suppose that it is for his interest they incur all this cost and if he form an uncomplimentary opinion of their part in the affair what moral obligation is he likely to feel as to his own politicians are fond of treating it as the dream of enthusiasts that the electoral body will ever be uncorrupt truly enough until they are willing to become so themselves for the electors assuredly will take their moral tone from the candidates so long as the elected member in any shape or manner pays for his seat all endeavours will fail to make the business of election anything but a selfish bargain on all sides so long as the candidate himself and the customs of the world seem to regard the function of a member of parliament less as a duty to be discharged than a personal favour to be solicited no effort will avail to implant in an ordinary voter the feeling that the election of a member of parliament is also a matter of duty and that he is not at liberty to bestow his vote on any other consideration than that of personal fitness the same principle which demands that no payment of money for election purposes should be either required or tolerated on the part of the person elected dictates another conclusion apparently of contrary tendency but really directed to the same object it negatives what has often been proposed as a means of rendering parliament accessible to persons of all ranks and circumstances the payment of members of parliament if as in some of our colonies there are scarcely any fit persons who can afford to attend to an unpaid occupation the payment should be an indemnity for loss of time or money not a salary the greater latitude of choice which a salary would give is an illusory advantage no remuneration which any one would think of attaching to the post would attract to it those who were seriously engaged in other lucrative professions with a prospect of succeeding in them the occupation of a member of parliament would therefore become an occupation in itself carried on like other professions with a view chiefly to its pecuniary returns and under the demoralizing object of desire to adventurers of a low class and six hundred fifty eight persons in possession with ten or twenty times as many in expectancy would be incessantly bidding to attract or retain the suffrages of the electors by promising all things honest or dishonest possible or impossible and rivalling each other in pandering to the meanest feelings and most ignorant prejudices of the vulgarest part of the crowd 
The auction between Cleon and the sausage-seller in Aristophanes is a fair caricature of what would be always going on. Such an institution would be a perpetual blister applied to the most peccant parts of human nature. It amounts to offering six hundred fifty-eight prizes for the most successful flatterer, the most adroit misleader of a body of his fellow-countrymen. Under no despotism has there been such an organized system of tillage for raising a rich crop of vicious courtiership. Footnote. As Mr. Lorimer remarks by creating a pecuniary inducement to persons of the lowest class to devote themselves to public affairs, the calling of the demagogue would be formally inaugurated. Nothing is more to be deprecated than making it the private interest of a number of active persons to urge the form of government in the direction of its natural perversion. The indications which either a multitude or an individual can give when merely left to their own weaknesses afford but a faint idea of what those weaknesses would become when played upon by a thousand flatterers. If there were six hundred fifty-eight places of certain, however moderate emolument, to be gained by persuading the multitude that ignorance is as good as knowledge, and better, it is terrible odds that they would believe and act upon the lesson. Article in Fraser's Magazine for April, 1859, headed Recent Writers on Reform. End footnote. When, by reason of preeminent qualifications, as may at any time happen to be the case, it is desirable that a person entirely without independent means, either derived from property or from a trade or profession, should be brought into Parliament to render services which no other person accessible can render as well, there is the resource of a public subscription. He may be supported while in Parliament, like Andrew Marvel, by the contributions of his constituents. This mode is unobjectionable, for such an honour will never be paid to mere subserviency. Bodies of men do not care so much for the difference between one sycophant and another as to go to the expense of his maintenance in order to be flattered by that particular individual. Such a support will only be given in the consideration of striking and impressive personal qualities, which, though no absolute proof of fitness to be a national representative, are some presumption of it, and at all events some guarantee for the possession of an independent opinion and will. End of chapter 10b Recording by Bill Borst